Welcome. We're starting another season of panels and podcasts at the Come to Believe Network. Come to Believe is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing higher education institutions with an innovative results-oriented two-year model that is accessible to students who are underrepresented at selective universities. The CTB model provides both a credential and a two-year pathway to a bachelor's degree, a better normal for higher ed access. In addition to our work with colleges and universities, CTB hopes to draw attention to key issues affecting the higher education landscape, especially related to the topics of access, affordability, and equity in college completion. Today, we're gonna to talk about credit accumulation, how the rate at which students earn college credits can make a big difference on their trajectories and ultimate success. And to discuss this topic, we're thrilled to have two distinguished guests with recent research in this area, who can help break down this complex but crucial topic for us. So first, we're joined by Dr. Taylor Odell, an assistant professor in the Department of Education Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His work leverages quantitative methods and data science techniques to study issues concerning the economics of education and education policy with a specific focus on college access and success. Dr. Odell recently co-authored a report on credit accumulation and completion rates among first-year college students, which will serve as the foundation for our discussion today. And uh, Dr. Davis Jenkins is a senior research scholar at the Community College Research Center and a research professor in education and social policy at Teachers College. He works with colleges, schools, community groups, and employers in communities and states across the country to find ways to improve educational and employment outcomes for students from groups that have been poorly served by the US educational system. Davis has decades of research experience on topics including credit accumulation and guided pathways. Welcome, Davis. Nice to be here. All right, so just to kick off, I'm hoping that each of you can tell me a little bit about your background, your route to conducting academic research, and what drew you to focus on higher ed in particular. Uh, Davis, why don't we start with you? So out of college, I was lucky enough to get a job as a speech and report writer for two gentlemen who had pioneered management consulting for higher education. They'd both been big names in public higher education. This was the early 80s. And I did studies with them. Uh, one of the studies that we did was for, for in 1983 for jo Governor Jim Hunt in North Carolina, who, you know, he didn't start the community college system, but he saw if North Carolina was too move away from textiles and tobacco to tech. You needed the research triangle to create knowledge and you needed a technical workforce to apply technical, uh, to support technical industry. So he was a big supporter of the community and technical colleges there. I had come through a very elite prep school, you know, Princeton ed education system. I knew nothing about community colleges. I fell in love with them. So I worked in public community colleges and broad access four years and high school transition ever since. Right, Taylor? Thanks, I should say I'm super happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation to talk a little bit about this work. So I kind of am the product of high quality undergraduate research engagement. I had a phenomenal advisor at my undergrad institution, the University of Tennessee, uh, where I studied org behavior. And so colleges and universities were some of the very first organizations uh, that were studied by IO psychologists and org firms. And so, um, that kind of got me interested and kind of my focus then was on kind of the structure of organizations and how physical but also perceived and psychological barriers 
make people successful or keep them out of institutions. And so um, that kind of pushed me into higher ed. And when I decided to do my master's, I kind of decided to focus on kind of what are those public policy levers that push or pull people into or out of higher ed, focus really on affordability, access, and finance. And so I had just really phenomenal opportunities to do some fellowships and internships with the College Board, the U.S. Senate, MDRC, kind of looking at different pieces of the federal and state policy agenda. And then I led fiscal policy and research activities for the Tennessee Higher Ed Commission uh, for a few years before moving to work on my PhD. And so I'm now an assistant professor at UW-Madison, and I focus on issues in the economics of education, but I'm really interested in students' transitions from high school to college and what barriers or springboards help make those transitions successful. Great. Thanks to you both for for sharing that. And so, Taylor, I think you can see uh, what you're just talking about in this recent report that you were a co-author on about credit accumulation and completion rates. And But before we get into the content of the report, I'm wondering if you can just tell me a little bit about how it came to be. What's what's the genesis behind this paper? Sure, sure. So a lot of people may not know this, but uh, the National Student Clearinghouse has something called the Post-Secondary Data Partnership that they've operated since about 2017. So most of us researchers think of NSC as just the place we go to find out some outcomes, right? Do we Did these people enroll, you know, did some students earn some college degrees? But PDP can be really powerful in that if institutions choose to opt into PDP, uh, the idea is to empower institutions with some actionable insights from their existing data, including some really ready-made visualizations for institutional leaders and stakeholders. We know many institutions, especially regional comprehensive institutions, uh, public community colleges, uh, have specific resource constraints, right? And they can't always have a massive staff of institutional research or institutional effectiveness officers. And so this is a way for the National Student Clearinghouse to step in and provide some kind of logistical support or structural support, if you will, to help understand what the student's progression looks like. And PDP's kind of explicit goal is to close equity gaps through data analysis. And the benefit here is that we're not only collecting students kind of each fall, right, and kind of at a very high level, are they enrolled or did they earn a degree, but we're looking really across their life course, right? So every semester, uh, what are students taking? Are they succeeding in those courses? And pairing that with really helpful demographic information too, right? What do students look like? What are their backgrounds? Like what backgrounds do they come from? And so we can kind of also see if students went on to different institutions or things like that. And so we can not only benchmark institutions against themselves or kind of against peer groups, but we're kind of just now looking at what, what a student's trajectories across college look like. And so far, over 500 colleges have kind of opted in to participate in PDP. Great. So let's dive into this most recent PDP paper, which is credit accumulation and completion rates among first-year college students. Can you tell us about the research questions? What were you trying to answer? And then what data were you looking at? Sure. So uh, this is the first PDP report uh, since it existed in 2017. So we really wanted to start with something basic, but something that could also be useful to policymakers or to institutional leaders. Um, So first, kind of conceptually, we know that students' first semesters in college and their first years can be really critical times that place students on a trajectory for success or that present them with a lot of hurdles that can kind of become hazards on their retention, fall to fall or fall to spring, and then ultimate timely degree completion. And so knowing that, we were principally interested in student success in coursework during their first year of college, 
in their accumulation of credit that may put them on track for what we could define as kind of timely graduation. So to be able to do that, we're drawing on this PDP data, which I mentioned includes like really de uh, rich demographics, high school performance, college placement and enrollment information, but it also provides really helpful uh, indicators on student financial aid, uh, course taking records, what courses did they enroll in, what courses did they complete, and what grades did they get there. And so we're specifically focused on these pieces of information for first time, first year students in these over 500 institutions that have ever participated in PDP, but these include over 900,000 students across 342 unique institutions. So we're looking at students at public uh, nonprofit four years, public four years, and public two years. Yeah, and in reading the report, you really get the sense for this really rich uh, data set. You're able to look at all these different factors and kind of talk about how they interplay together. But there's really two important statistics or metrics that I think uh, really drive this paper. And so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, with higher ed, there's a lot of data, a lot of different terminology. So I'm hoping you can break them down a little bit. So the two I'm thinking of are credit completion ratio and credit accumulation rate. So can you break those down for us? And why are they so important? Yeah. So in higher ed, we love our acronyms. And so I think it's super important yet to explain kind of what are we talking about here conceptually, but also why does it matter? And so the first thing you mentioned is the credit completion ratio or the CCR as it's referred to in the report. And the CCR is just kind of a really basic equation. For every student, what's the ratio of credits they earned over the credits that they attempted? So it's kind of a measure of success and attainment, and it can provide us an indicator of students overall course completions outcomes or kind of measure the students movement like through coursework so we could say oh for scott it's this within measure of general success in courses so for every x number of credits you attempt you know how many ultimate credits do you actually attain and then the ccar on the other hand or the credit accumulation rate directly measures students timely accumulation of credits and it helps us identify kind of what share of students are meeting the pre-specified benchmarks. So in their first year of college, you know, what percent of students earn 24 or more credit hours? Or what percent of students earn 30 or more credit hours? And so this is kind of an early, what we'll call an early momentum measure. So kind of identifying students' progression toward a degree completion, not only, but also where does it happen in their first year and maybe what gaps exist. And so as you kind of alluded to earlier, whether we're looking at students' own credit completion ratio, or cohort measure at a predefined, you know, 24 or 30 credit hour, we can disaggregate these measures across a lot of really important student demographics as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm pretty sure, uh, Davis, you actually did research. I noticed, uh, Taylor, you used the term credit momentum. So I, I believe you had a paper on this actually in Tennessee. And so can you tell us a little bit about what your research was about and what your findings were? Well, we've noticed for a long time that students who gain early momentum, that is, who accumulate a substantial number of credit, are more likely to graduate and succeed. We've done a number of studies, including in Tennessee. We recently, my colleagues recently did one in Washington State, where once again, they found the benefits of taking a substantial number of credits early on for students generally, but they found especially strong benefits of early momentum for Black, Latinx, and low-income students. So the very students who are often advised for whatever reason to take it easy, that's not very good advice. And in particular, you know, we think colleges could help, can help students think about 
being on at least a 20 credit college credits per year, which would enable them to get an associate degree in three years and a bachelor's in six years, even attending part-time. Right, yeah. And in the paper, I think uh, the, the credit numbers that you often see are 15, which would allow you to graduate with an associate's in two years and then bachelor's in four, and then 12, which is often like the floor for full-time credit enrollment. Yes, but you know, students are told 12 credits is full-time, but they're not told, well, you can't, if you take 12 credits, you can't graduate in the four semesters advertised in the catalog, and you certainly can't transfer and get a bachelor's in a two plus two. Very, very few students proceed in a two plus two manner. We're recommending that colleges take the, the perspectives that the student needs to take, which is, will, will want to take, which is, how long does it take to finish? So if you, uh, if you on a three-year plan, that means you need to, with across the entire year, including the summer, need to take and pass at least 20 college credits a year. You know, 12 credits is considered full-time, not because of it's in the interest of students, but that is the minimum number that federal financial aid allows a student to get full financial aid. Yeah, it's a great point. All right, so uh, Taylor, let's uh, pivot back to your recent paper. So I'm curious about your top line findings. So for the credit completion ratio, what, what did you find looking at these? I think you said 900,000 students. So what, what did you find when you looked at that metric? Yeah, I really just want to quickly jump on something that Davis said and, and kind of commend him and his colleagues at the Community College Research Center and that a lot of this PDP data collection is based on those early momentum metrics that have been identified by CCRC and other firms. And so we're continuing to build on one another and what we know matters for kind of early starting students. Um, and then two, well, the, just a quick- the, I want to commend the PDP because as, as Sam mentioned, Tennessee, I mentioned Washington, these transcript data have generally only been at, uh, available at the state level, which is important. And so a lot of our studies on this and other topics, when you're looking at transcripts, has been the PDP is interesting because while it's not a representative sample of college, it's a it's a large 600 institutions and diverse set of institutions where you have this transcript data. So the work that Taylor and other uh, scholars are doing and the clearinghouse is doing on this data is really important. And, you know, when people see a study from Tennessee, if you're in Tennessee, that's interesting. But if you're in California, uh, again, while it's not representative, the PDP can provide us a lot of insight that, you know, speaks to uh, higher education institutions across the country. So I want to commend you for that. And two, I'll just say, like, the prior conversation is exactly right. You know, how we define things really matters and changes what insights we can garner. And so for this report, when we're looking at students' accumulation at those benchmarks, uh, we kind of defined for part-time students, we asked whether they earned at least 12 credits across their first year, and then if they earned at least 24 credits across their first year. Um, or sorry, 12 credits and 15 credits, and for full-time students, we push those up to 24 which would be kind of the traditional, you know, full-time for a full-time student and then uh, 30 credit hours. And so, Sam, back to your kind of original question, though, like kind of top-line findings from our report, what we found is that in this PDP data set, these over 900,000 students, students are roughly earning about 75% of the credits that they attempt. So that's saying, on average, the student who take 12 credits a semester 
they're earning credit or they're earning passing grades for about nine of those. So the average student who signs up to be full-time, they sign up for 12, they're technically full-time, but in our data set, what we can see is that the average of them are earning about nine of those credits. So then when we're looking kind of at the credit uh, accumulation rate, we see that only about half or 51% of full-time students are earning 24 or more credit hours in their first year. Uh, and only less than a third of them, or about 28%, are earning 30 or more credit hours. And so what this kind of ultimately tells us is that if we kind of define on time for uh, degree attainment, whether that's a bachelor's in four or an associate in two, the average full-time student isn't even attempting enough credits to complete that bachelor's degree in four years. So if we only look at those full-time students, the average full-time student's only attempting about 27 credit hours. And we know that they're only gonna complete about 75% of those. And true to what we see in our data is they're attempting about 27 hours a year and they're earning about 22 a year. And this kind of tells us at the end of the day that even the average full-time student isn't on track to complete a bachelor's degree in even five years. And so we have this cycle of students not necessarily attempting enough credits, combined with the fact that even when they attempt those credits, they're not then necessarily earning all of those credits. So it kind of presents us some questions about what are we advising students to take? How many credits are they taking? Ultimately knowing that they're not necessarily gonna earn all of those credits that they do attempt. Yeah, so I mean, it's a really striking finding when you think about it, but it, it also goes back to Davis, what you were talking about earlier, which is that we say full time is 12 credits without any regard for, you know, what that what that means for the student, uh, as opposed to what it means for the institution. So I want to return because, uh, Taylor, you did note that the paper is it's much richer than just these top line findings. The data has all these different sets of, you know, subgroups that you do the analysis for. So can you tell me a little bit about are there gaps uh, from across different groups? What were some notable findings that you found when you look below the top line? Yeah, so it's a, a great question. And so I hope I do hope that folks will turn to the full report to kind of dig into more than these top line findings, but also to really examine the kind of rich subgroup analysis where you're able to do looking across many dimensions. But um, when we're looking at the credit completion ratio and the credit accumulation rate, um, we see that these really widely vary principally by race and ethnicity, students enrollment intensity, measures of their college readiness or college placement what degree they're seeking and kind of what institution they're enrolled in. And so kind of a big top line finding for the credit completion ratio was that uh, we found that black males uh, across their first year of study earned the equivalent of one whole three credit hour course less than their white or Asian peers, you know, in just their first year of study. So even if they necessarily may attempt the same amount of credit, they're earning a whole class less a whole class less in their first year of study, which necessarily doesn't put them on equal or equitable on time degree completion, on track for degree completion. But we also saw that these really large gaps between students attempting and earning credits were also existed across dimensions of like gender, race, ethnicity, and enrollment intensity. And so we found that uh, among women, the percent of Asian students that earned 30 or more credit hours in their first year was more than double that of the share of Black or African-American or Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander or females. And so even when we look within some of these groups, like uh, within gender groups specifically, we still see these really wide disparities in 
credits attempted and credits earned across dimensions of race and ethnicity. We've also hopefully used the report to highlight some findings that have not necessarily always been highlighted, like performance of adults or performance of transfer students, and also to kind of disentangle some prior notions that may be held by some specific institutional groups that aren't really true in what we see in our data. And a big caveat here is, like David said, this isn't a nationally representative sample of students, but this is a large sample of students across a really diverse array of institutional types and locales. And so what we actually found is that transfer students are kind of, there. there is a prior assumption that we understand, and particularly four-year institutions sometimes, that transfer students may be less prepared than their kind of native peers who start, you know, they come into a four-year institution as a freshman or something. And what we actually see is that transfer students earn consistently higher. They achieve these kind of benchmark rates at really higher rates than their like native peers. And we see that what we kind of also know to be true, we see that adult learners or adults, you know, individuals over the age of 24, they actually are earning consistently like lower credit accumulation rates or CCRs, even after we consider enrollment intensity. And so we kind of think that transfer students are disadvantaged, you know, because they didn't start at a four-year, or we think sometimes that adults have enough grit or life experience to necessarily do this, but this kind of flips the script on that and shows that some groups that we've maybe been shining the spotlight on before are, are doing okay, um, and we need to look in different areas. But kind of as you could also imagine, and again, I hope folks will look to the full report, but we see these really wide differences by institutional type. So Students at private, nonprofit, four years typically achieve higher credit accumulation rates and credit completion ratios, followed by public four years and then public two years. And then, as you can imagine, students who are enrolled full time are more likely to earn, you know, more credits or surpass these rates in their first year. But I think a big also standout finding was that we found that both of these rates really vary by these measures of students' college readiness. And so the credit completion ratio, so the percent of credits that students earned over those they attempted was 81% for students who were considered to be college ready in uh, English and math, but that fell to 63% for students who were not college ready for, in English and math. And so these are really, we have those top level findings, but the story can be either a lot more positive or a really, a, a really kind of scarier story once we look into student groups and kind of consider these equity gaps. Definitely. And I think a lot of those equity gaps are things that, um, like you mentioned earlier, CCRC has been focusing, focused on for a long time. So Davis, I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, so you've been doing research on this for, for many years now. And I think that what, when I was reading the paper uh, that Taylor's discussing right now, I felt a lot of it resonated with some of the work that I've read of yours. Um, and so you've kind of dived deeper into like what might be causing some of these things, uh, like identifying issues within institutions. So I'm, I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what your research has found about what issues may kind of undermine student success, may prevent them from getting the credits that they need or, or succeeding in the courses that they're enrolled on. Well, Taylor alluded to institutional mindsets and what I love about this study and what we try to do at CCRC is look at what actually happens to students and change their, uh, the mindsets of folks in the, in the business. Too often colleges, uh, certainly community colleges traditionally, but even four years don't have a mindset of how important it is for students to complete on schedule. Uh, this is very important for students and certainly students who from underserved groups uh, don't have a lot of time to waste. And 
what we find too often is there isn't an institutional focus on helping students. And I would like us to get beyond this idea of full-time, part-time, which we've already argued doesn't even really make sense because 12 credits is not really full-time if you want to complete in four semesters an associate degree, uh, to on-plan and off-plan. I don't think we should be taking students' money without working with them to develop a full program plan and then working to ensure that they can take the courses they need to finish, whether it be a two-year for an associate or a three-year or a four-year, five-year, six-year. If the student knows how long it's going to take them and if the college make sure that they provide the kind of provide the courses the students need when they need them, including in the summer, including J terms, then we can, I think, really uh, change, help to change the mindset in favor of students. But in order to get students on a plan, you really have to have the mindset of we need to help students find a direction and get momentum and focus on students' motivation, not just their academic readiness. And in community colleges especially, but also four years, students coming in aren't really asked, what, it is, what, what are you trying to achieve? What, is your, what are you interested in? What are you good at? And they're not helped to connect to faculty, students, and others right away in fields that they're interested in, topics they're interested in. Instead, in a community college, one of the first things they do is go to the testing center and take a standardized test which research by my colleagues Judy Scott Clayton and many others suggest are not a good predictor of success, even though there are correlations with, with success. And they're uh, referred to take essentially high school mathematics and composition, the, the course they hated most in high school, math, abstract math, taught often by adjuncts. I'm not knocking adjuncts, but they're often not well supported. And Generally, uh, they're not helped to, you know, motivate, get motivated by helping find out what, what am I interested in? There's this presumption that they know, but, you know, first-generation students, students from working-class families don't have a sense of what's, what's involved and what, what are the opportunities are. So what I'm calling for, what I think Taylor's research and others' research we have done suggests is that we need to change the mindset and focus on our obligation to students to help them finish on a schedule suited to their lives. And we need to offer them a, a full program plan and monitor their progress. And when they need to change directions, help them do that. Number two, we need to help students really explore interests and opportunities, connect with people uh, early on and, and uh, give them an inspiring but well-supported learning experience in their first term to really help them get motivated and build this uh, momentum that our research shows is really helpful to students. Yeah, so you can hear Dave is talking about some of the implications uh, for, for higher ed institutions, for leaders. Taylor, just thinking about as you were looking through the findings of your paper, what, what would you say to higher ed leaders that are reading your study and saying, okay, what do I do now? Yeah, I think a big question that we could share is, you know, if, if we know students are earning roughly 75% of the credits they attempt, should we be recommending that they take more, you know, like instead of the usual 15 or the 12 for full time, but building off on what David Davis just said, like an important follow-up question is like, well, why are students not taking enough credits to begin with? Or why are they not 
completely earning all of the credits that they are attempting. And there are a myriad of possible explanations for that, right, that are ripe for institutions to experiment with and for policymakers to to fund and to be innovative on these things, right? A question could be, you know, do students lack access to high quality academic advising and to the resources and degree plans like Davis was just, you know, discussing? And absolutely, there, there are growth inequalities across institutional types and different levels of resources that either provide students with access to these things or that don't. But we also have structural barriers in place too, right? Like Davis just mentioned, some students are placed or tracked into remedial developmental coursework that will not give them credit for a lot of the classes that they are taking because they need to check that box before they check the other. And so even if a student signs up for 15 credit hours and they're in a remedial developmental course, their maximum possible you know, number of credits they can earn in that first semester is limited to 12. And there are a lot of institutional practices, right, that have existed for a long time that need to be rethought, like flexible course scheduling for working adults for when, you know, they can't take class at 11 a.m. on Monday morning or something like that, right? Uh, in our federal and state institutional financial aid policies, you know, like we have interesting incentive structures for students on kind of the level to take more credits or to succeed in more credits and for institutions. And so, I think the biggest takeaway I would think from this is to kind of, we need to reset our priors or we need to kind of reset what we think we know about course taking and credit accumulation at these different institutional types. And I'm hoping that this can also be a call for policymakers and institutions alike to, to use this information to partner with researchers like, like Davis and I to think about new ways of experimenting to make some of these programs or to make students more successful, to try new things out. A lot of the leadership in the state, in this place that has come from, places like CCRC, but also from states like Ohio and Texas and Tennessee and California, places that were willing and kind of willing to say, hey, this isn't working for our student populations. Let's try something new. And they've experimented and found that some things are super successful and other things aren't. But on balance, students in those places and those types of institutions are more successful than they would have been without any action. I think it's on the the, the credit uh, pass rate. The colleges need to take a look at what courses students are taking. When we look at this using transcript data like the PDP or in states, and we strongly encourage colleges to look at it. And in community colleges, we find it's often remedial or more recently co-requisite mathematics composition, a college success course, and maybe psych. Is that an exciting, is that different enough from high school uh, that it's going to motivate students? And then ask the question, which is really begged by uh, Taylor's finding around, you know, the low course completion rates, especially in community colleges, who's teaching those courses and what supports are we providing in them? And focusing not just on helping students come to academic you know, college-level academic standards, but college-level, learn to be college learners. And that means writing longer things, thinking, using, doing problem solving, moving away from multiple choice things, the kinds of learning they did in high school. It's a different type of learning in college. It's hard, but students need to help modeling that because we talked to so many students who said, you know, I did okay in high school and now they're putting me in remedial math. I really think it's important to look at that early course taking and provide our best teachers with the best academic support because again, as we found, once students get momentum 
including the students who Taylor's research has found are, are not achieving at the rates of others, they do just fine. Yeah, so uh, and Davis, a lot of the things that you're talking about um, are part of a broader program that CCRC has been developing and researching for a long time now called Guided Pathways. I want to make sure the listeners are aware of this program so they can, they can read more about it online, look it up. But could you tell us a little bit about Guided Pathways, where it came from, and then kind of any components you haven't discussed that you think might be interesting? So Guided Pathways is sort of, it's not really a, a program or a particular intervention. It's a, it's a framework. Basically, we asked the question why, despite two decades of, of work by community colleges and four-year institutions on improvement, especially in community colleges, we hadn't seen improvements in outcomes. And our thesis is that, college, that discrete interventions like supplemental instruction, uh, better advising, et cetera, while important, aren't going to move the needle unless we change the experience for all students. And that's not going to happen unless we change, as Taylor was saying earlier, the organization of the college, how college programs and student supports are redesigned. So Guided Pathways is a framework for doing that. And the idea is you start with the end in mind, where the end is employment and transfer in majors and backward design programs. And you change college practices in four ways, making sure that they're more clearly mapped to student end goals for employment and further education, number one. Number two, and I've talked a lot about this because Taylor's study uh, really focused on onboarding, helping students get into a program, not just in the college, into a program. Number three, helping them stay on path. And number four, which is really cross-cutting, make sure they're learning not just in individual courses, but across their programs, building skills and knowledge that will help them in the workplace, but also in further education. You mentioned onboarding uh, a few times, and you actually have a, an even more specific framework for this, ACIP. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What, what does that consist of and why is it so important? So especially for community colleges, even before Taylor's excellent research, we found that we can see that community colleges are losing 40% of their students and more than half their students of color and first-generation students by the second year. So they're dropping out. And we can see the lack of supports for incoming students, uh, like I was talking about before, the same kind of supports that are the types of supports that you see in public, better resource public selective institutions and the private nonprofits that were in Taylor's database where students are doing better. And so this is really focused on the second pillar of Guided Pathways, which is helping them get on a program, helping them get into a program. And the acronym, which again is a research-based framework, a framework of research-supported practices is Ask, Connect, Inspire, and Plan. We need to ask every student what do you, why are you here? What are you interested in? What do you like to do? What are you good at? Because we're not doing that. Students can go to the advising center and get this kind of conversation, but we find that students who need this kind of conversation don't go. Number two, you're interested in drones. You're interested in, uh, in education policy. You've got to talk to Professor Odell. Connecting students right away with professors. And then the third 
thing which I was really alluding to is that there's a lot of research suggesting that students need to have a challenging but inspiring learning experience early on. They have to become confident as college learners. And that is learning to think and, you know, learn and, and perform in the college mode. And so uh, that's really inspire. They need an inspiring first term experience. So we ask colleges, okay, most of your incoming students are taking DevEd algebra or maybe co-rec algebra, English comp, college success course, and maybe gym or psych or computer course. Is that an inspiring curriculum? Who's teaching those courses? And especially for the tough courses, these program foundation courses, are we, what, are we providing kind of academic supports that students need embedded in the courses to bring up that completion rate that Taylor has, has found problematic? And then number four, again, we've got to help students develop a plan and then execute the plan. One reason, you know, colleges say students are full-time or part-time, like it's a genetic trait, like green eyes or brown eyes. But in fact, colleges can do a lot to improve, and Taylor alluded to this, the momentum for students. They can offer courses at times other than Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 12 when professors want to teach. They can offer the courses on students' plans. They can offer courses in hybrid mode on Saturdays, et cetera. And they can make use of summer terms. Our students aren't you know, going to Europe in the summer and J terms so that even when students are going part-time, they can complete in an associate degree in three years and a bachelor's in six. And then very importantly, we gotta make sure, and we hear this from students all the time, that the courses students are, the co courses student colleges are offering students are the ones they need for their plans, not just the courses that, well, we just happen to have teachers for that, or, you know, we, we, it's convenient for the college. We've got to focus on student outcomes and timely on schedule for the student completion of programs. And we think this will go a long way. And indeed, colleges that have done these kinds of things are starting to see on schedule completion, that is on the student schedule, uh, with fewer excess credits, which we didn't talk about, students taking at their expense and the taxpayer's expense and higher completion rates. So Taylor, back to you, I want to think about, you know, whether it's the post-secondary data partnership or other initiatives, we can see how these findings can drive reform. But I'm curious what other research you'd like to see in this area. Where would you like to dive deeper or where would you like other scholars interested in this area to, to try to, you know, unearth new findings that can move the field forward? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, like what we did in this first pass of PDP was looking at students' first year kind of credit completion or credit accumulation. And so I think a natural next question is, you know, how does this first year momentum in these institutions and defining these ways relate to students kind of second, third, fourth year success? And I think that will help institutions maybe even understand, you know, are, are we setting some students up for a tougher fight, you know, really on the front end? And so we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that we don't see what we want to see, you know, at the end of the day, or at the end of the school year. But as Davis kind of alluded to at the beginning, insights like these have not been readily available to institutional leaders or us as, as researchers or research firms because they live in really siloed places in states that have works to generate kind of these sophisticated student level data systems. And so 
on PDP, like specifically, you know, we know that things like even kind of gateway or de developmental like course placement, I'd be interested in looking, you know, in, in PDP data, what the placement rates and outcomes look like for this different subset of students and particularly students who are more likely to be identified as not college ready and what outcomes for those students look like to maybe students who look very similar to them but weren't categorized in that way. We also have really rich opportunities to look at changes in course modalities over time, right? Like how students' performances look like in face-to-face -face versus hybrid versus online courses. And that's something that's readily available in the post-secondary data partnership. We can look more at adult learners and their enrollments and demographics. And as Davis mentioned, what courses are they taking each semester in these early semesters? And what courses are they passing those early semesters? Who's teaching those courses? And how does that relate to their ultimate program of study? And then I think everybody's kind of general question too is we can look at these things over time. So maybe what was the impact of kind of the COVID-19 pandemic on credit accumulation, credits attempted and things like that for these equity gaps that we're talking about? I can only imagine that they've been exacerbated, you know, by the kind of really harsh and unequal impact of COVID-19 on these different student groups. But I think that the goal of the first report is to inspire future work to build from it and to kind of alert researchers that the post-secondary data partnership exists and that we can really generate some actual insights for policymakers. And I really do think the sky's the limit on asking future questions uh, because we now have a, not a nationally representative set of students, but we have a really large cohort of students at a really diverse set of institution types that we can dig more into these early momentum metrics for them. Great, thank you. As as somebody working you know, in higher education and thinking about research, I, I want to just emphasize how appreciative we are of the re great research coming out of, uh, you know, this paper, for example, or CCRC. I mean, when you look at the come to believe college model at Arupe College at Loyola University of Chicago or Doherty Family College at the University of St. Thomas, a lot of it is informed by this work. So creating highly structured experiences, making sure students take 30 credits a year so they're ready to transfer in two years making sure the schedule works so that students don't have, you know, don't have to choose between working part-time and, and going to school, making sure that the faculty are full-time, focused on instruction, high quality, the courses are just as rigorous as the other first-year courses at schools. Those are all things that are emphasized because they came out of research like this. So uh, on behalf of people working in higher ed, thank you both for, for your contributions and know that as soon as you publish something, we'll be reading it eagerly and, uh, and looking to apply it. So I think that's a, a nice place to wrap up. Davis Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time both to do this excellent research and also to share your findings with us. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure.